Well, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church, and I have the joy of opening up God's Word uh, this Good Friday. Here's one of the most awkward introductions on Good Friday. Good Friday. Like, what do you say? So, good afternoon. Good Friday. Good Friday. No, don't do that. <laughs> good afternoon. Um, there, there is a, a principle in this world that I want to share with you. It's a rule that you may or may not be familiar with, and it goes like this. What happens in the physical realm affects what happens in the spiritual realm. And what happens in the spiritual realm affects what happens in the physical realm. So I want to give you an illustration. You are praying. And prayer is a very physical act. Your mouth is moving. Your lungs are blowing air out of your mouth. And your brain and synapses are functioning in a certain way. And you go before God and you pray and you ask him for things or you tell him things. And then here's what happens. Spiritual realities start to take place. That what you do in the physical actually begins to affect what happens in the spiritual. And then what happens in the spiritual reverberates back and it affects what happens in the physical. Now here's a, a tangible example that I get to experience every single week. I get up and I get to preach and I get to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God. And when I preach, I mean, I have no power in it myself. I'm weak. I mean, most of you can beat me up. So uh, I, when I preach, it's just, it's words on one level, right? But when the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached, it has inherent power in it so that when I do this physical thing, spiritual realities start to play, take place. And that God, by his Holy Spirit, starts to move and spiritual things start to change. And then when something changes inside of somebody's soul, physical things start to happen, right? And so what you find is that what you do in the physical affects what happens in the spiritual. What happens in the spiritual affects what happens in the physical. And some of us are just looking at the physical. And when we, we think about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, it's very easy to get caught up in the physical, but what happens when the gospel writers, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when they write about the crucifixion and the resurrection, um, they're honing in on what's happening in the physical, but they leave like little breadcrumbs for you to give you a clue that something bigger is going on than just the death or execution of a, of a Jewish man in Rome on a cross. Uh, something bigger is happening, something uh, bigger than what we can understand. It's actually bigger than just the physical. It, it has actually cosmic imp uh, repercussions and implications, and the spiritual realm ends up being massively affected by this. In the New Testament letters, you'll read like the Apostle Paul writes a letter to a different church, and they start unraveling for us some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, the spiritual implications of what happened on the cross. So what I want to do with you, uh, not this morning, I keep saying this morning, this afternoon, is I want to open up in the book of Matthew, chapter 27. If you have a Bible, you can look at it there, or it'll be on the screen. What I want to do is I want to look at the book of Matthew, and we're going to see how the gospel writer um, leaves us little breadcrumbs. He tells us what happens in the physical, but he leaves us little clues that something way bigger than the death of a Jewish man on a Roman cross is actually happening. And, and so it starts off, and here's what it says. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So um, that would be from about noon to 3 p.m. And the author is just telling you what's happening. But he's giving you a little clue, a little breadcrumb. Something cosmic is going on. Something bigger than a Jewish dead man is going on. And in the sky, you would just see black or dark in the middle of the day. This is um, probably very unusual. And the author is going to actually give you another little clue here. He's not going to totally fill in all the gaps, but here's what he says. This happened from, the, from noon to from the, the sixth hour to the ninth hour. Well, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, do you know what was happening in the temple, across town, if you will? The Passover lamb started to be sacrificed. Now, you're sitting here. Jesus is on a cross. 
And at the same time, is this coincidence? I think not. God is a genius in the way that he orchestrates history, and he's always communicating. And there's what happens on a physical level, but then there are symbols and spiritual things that are being communicated. He goes on, he says this, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. So like you're going to be there at the cross and you're sitting there and you're watching this, this Jewish man being executed. And what you see on the physical level is a religious guy quoting scripture. But the author is trying to tell you that something bigger and deeper and more cosmic is going on than just the physical realm. You may not know this, but every time Jesus talks to God, he calls him father or daddy. And now here we see that he doesn't call him that. He calls him my God. And there's something being communicated here subtly in the text. There's something that is happening. There's a relational separation, if you will, between the Father and the Son. And the New Testament speaks into this and lets us know that God the Father, his beloved Son, Jesus, one in all of eternity, have a closer relationship than any father and son could possibly imagine in this world. There is nobody more important to God than his Son, Jesus. And something happened on this cross in these three hours where God the Father and God the Son were relationally separated and Jesus cries out in agony. And what we find in the New Testament that he is bearing on his body and his soul the full weight of all of God's righteous and just anger um, for our sin. God is taking all of it and he is lambasting Jesus' soul with this righteous wrath and justice. And you got to make sure you know one thing here. Jesus is not a victim. This isn't cosmic child abuse. Jesus is a willing participant who agreed to endure to the very end. He knew exactly what he was in for, and he chose this. Why? Because there's something bigger at stake going on than a dead Jewish man on a Roman cross. Isaiah 53.10 says this, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. That when you look at the prophecies from the Old Testament, that's 700 years before this happens. You look at the writings of the New Testament, how they reflect this, that this is a crushing of the body and the soul of Jesus by his own dad. And so there are bigger realities going on than just, oh, there's a guy, another one of the thousand that I've seen in the last couple years getting crucified on a cross. This is a big deal. One author wrote this, and this is beautiful. He said, at the at this moment, Jesus became the most grotesque, ugly, hideous thing in the history of all creation. In what Martin Luther calls the great exchange, the sinless Jesus so thoroughly took our place that he became the worst of what we are. Thieves, perverts, addicts, liars, gluttons, gossips, murderers, adulterers, fornicators, idolaters. Jesus' work on the cross was not just a cosmic bookkeeping transaction in the divine economy. Jesus actually took to himself our sin with all of its horror and its shame. That God, the Father, holy, flawless, and blameless, his beloved son, Jesus, without sin or error, the Bible says, becomes sin for us. And as the song says, the father turns his face away and pours out his just anger on Jesus. For nothing that Jesus did, Jesus took that because he needed to pay the price for something bigger than we could possibly understand. Well, it goes on. And again, we see that the author is telling us on the physical what's happening, and he's giving us just little breadcrumbs of the spiritual. And some of the bystanders 
hearing it, said, this man is calling out Elijah. This may sound random and weird at this point, but the reason they think this is because remember when Jesus said those weird words that you can't understand, okay? He said, Eli, Eli. The people don't speak Aramaic, which is what Jesus was speaking. And so they thought he was crying out for Elijah. And then they're going to start mocking him. And one of them uh, at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine. Apparently this would mitigate some of the thirst. And put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, 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 wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. Now they're just mocking him. And so what you think is just a physical thing, and they're just looking at this guy, and they're like, yeah, it's just another dead guy. He claimed to be God. He forgave sins. Apparently some people said um, that he raised the dead and healed people and healed lepers. And the author wants you to get something. That these bystanders have completely missed the point. Completely. They think this is just another execution. They think this is just another false messiah falsely proclaiming that he is bigger than he is. Look, justice is finally happening. What they can't see is the convergence of the physical and the spiritual that this is the pouring out in Jesus' soul and body and emotions and his relationships, the fullness of God's wrath on him, which for most people is weird language. Like if you're kind of distant to church and you're around every once in a while, this wrath language, like it feels kind of extreme and, and kind of like God's a little bit scary. And this is the language the Bible uses, though. The reason the cross is such a big deal is not because Jesus died to show us a moral lesson about how to be sacrificial. The reason the cross is such a big deal is because on the cross, God the Father poured out wrath on Jesus, and he suffered in more ways than we could even understand. It says this, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. The book of Luke and John actually put together would tell us what Jesus said, the final words of Jesus. And uh, here, though, it says he cried out again, meaning this is a continual experience of anguish. He's crying out. And the last crying out of Jesus are these words, Father, remember he calls him Father again, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. And if you're just there, you're just watching another rebel close his eyes and die on a cross. But what's crazy is that what happens in the physical affects what happens in the spiritual and it reverberates back and it affects what happens in the physical. And we are going to watch the cosmos respond. And I love this, that the authors are talking about the physical, and now they're going to show us some big, weird, awesome, really cool things start to happen. And there are three of them, and I want you to see the aftermath of this event. Number one, there's a torn curtain. This may mean nothing to you. If you don't know the history, I want to bring you into this. Here's what it says. And behold, at the moment of Jesus' death, uh, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, very important, from top to bottom. So I'll tell you a little bit about what this is and then why this is even relevant. Uh, this is a curtain that's 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide. I feel like that's about 60 feet. So like go all the way to the top of the ceiling. That's a big curtain, right? Um, it's about two to three inches thick, most people think. So let's just be straight. You're not going to rip this curtain. I mean, you could be as strong as you want. You could lift weights all day long. Are any of you going to rip this curtain in half? The answer is no, you're not going to do anything about this, right? This is an enormous curtain. Now, this curtain had profound significance and symbolism. I want to take you back all the way to the Garden of Eden. Pop quiz, who's in the Garden of Eden? Adam and 
Eve. Okay, you're with me. Good. Adam and Eve are in the garden, and they sinned. And then here's what happens. Because of their sin, now they are separated from God. And so God puts up an angel and with this sweet flaming sword and says, you're out of the garden where I live, the garden of God's presence. And access to me is permanently denied. And if you try to get in, this angel with a flaming awesome sword will rip you to shreds. Okay? And so you sit there and you're Adam and Eve and you realize the guilt of your sin and now you no longer have access to the God who has created you and loved you. Fast forward, we have Moses. Uh, the, the Israelites are in the wilderness and God calls Moses to the top of a mountain and there's a storm and he looks at the Israelites and says, if you touch this mountain, if you even just step on this mountain, you will die. Access to me is denied, and God made a very unique permission, gave Moses very unique permission to go on the top of the mountain, the storm, and, and he was up there for a long time, his face glowed. I mean, it was pretty fairly epic, let's be honest. And, uh, but other than Moses, access to God is denied. And then God tells him to build a tabernacle, which is basically a big tent, and eventually the tent is built into a temple. And in this tabernacle is this room, and it's called the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place. Let me just tell you, you don't go into that room or you die. And in this room is where the very presence of God would dwell. And permission, exceptions were given for one person one time a year, and you had to go through certain rites and rituals to get in. They would put a uh, rope around their ankle in case they uh, didn't do it right and then got obliterated in God's presence and they had to pull out their dead body. And so, like, this was a very scary thing, going into the presence of God, okay? And so they would go in once a year and they would have to go through the curtain. And the curtain was thick and beautiful and huge to communicate, don't pass through or you die. So now I want you to imagine the moment Jesus dies, what are the priests doing? They are sacrificing. There's a number of priests probably in this, not in the Holy of Holies, but just outside they can see this. And the reason we know that the curtain tore from top to bottom is because people were there. And there were people there, and at once this curtain is shredded from top to bottom. I don't know about you, but like, what if you're petrified of this room and all of a sudden you can look into it and you can see everything that's going on in there? I mean, part of me imagines, I'd be like, you gonna kill me? <laughs> you're looking in, you're creeping around the corner. Well, my foot didn't go in, so is that a big deal? Like, it makes you wonder, like, what were they, did they run for their life? Did they look at all? I mean, were they petrified? But this is a very physical act, but something is being communicated way beyond the physical. Something very profound is being communicated in this moment. I want you to hear me. That before the death of Jesus Christ, God could not be approached with boldness. And something so cosmic and cataclysmic happened on the cross that now, I want you to catch this, we can walk into the Holy of Holies with boldness. That's insane. The gospel of Jesus Christ was mind-blowing to the Jewish people because they spent their entire life fearing God, not going near God, totally petrified. Then these Christians come along and they say, no, 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 no. He has actually made it possible for you to approach God with boldness and with confidence. Whenever you need help, you can go right to God. And now there is nothing, nothing, nothing that stands between you and God except for one thing. And I want you to hear this very clearly. It is unbelief. That is the only thing that stands between you and God. And, and, and here's the general biblical rule. Anyone who believes in Jesus Christ has access into the Holy of Holies. So we talked about these things that are physical but have profound spiritual realities and reverberate back into the physical. A simple profession, 
your words, your tongue, your teeth, the air, your brain, your synapses, I believe. And the cosmic effects, the spiritual realm goes to work, and God promises this, this simple physical act has profound spiritual realities and implications immediately. To the point, to the point where when you truly believe, God, the Holy Spirit, promises to fill you. Every sin is forgiven 100%. You go from being guilty to innocent, just like that. You, had you gone into the Holy of Holies before your profession of belief would be incinerated, now you can walk into the Holy of Holies with absolute confidence and boldness every time you need grace or mercy or help. This little physical act of professing belief sets the spiritual realm into motion. And at once, you go from child of wrath to child of God, heir of all of the spiritual and physical fortunes of God that one day will be given to you. You go from separated from God in a moment to being more loved by God than any other human has ever loved you times a million. Like, cataclysmic and amazing. And so when this curtain is torn, you might just read this and just glance on and go to the next statement. But I, want you to, I just want to tell you that God is proclaiming something to you powerful, that there are deep spiritual realities being communicated here. Number two, the tombs were opened. This, okay, I'm going to be straight with you. It's a little weird. But you know what? We're Christians, so we should get used to weird, okay? So uh, Weird things happen in the Bible. And let's be honest, if God can raise Jesus from the dead, can he not do anything? The answer is yes, okay? So at first I read this and I'm like, what is this? And it doesn't show up in any of the other gospels. You don't hear about this anywhere else except for right here. But God's word is true. And then the more I thought about it, the more I thought to myself, this actually makes total sense that God would do this. And here's what it says. And this is at the moment that Jesus died, the earth shook and the rocks were split the tombs also were opened. Okay, pause. Kids, I want you to listen up, okay? The, the tombstone that went over Jesus' tomb was likely two tons. Do you know how big that is? The size of an adult rhinoceros. The size of an adult giraffe. Even better. The, si the weight of the tongue of a blue whale. God is so awesome. All right, that's crazy. It goes on. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, which means they died, were raised. And coming out of the tombs, okay, pause. We're just going to like, I'm going to be honest. I don't know totally when this happened. It seems like the way Matthew writes this, that Jesus dies, the earthquakes happen, the, the rocks split, the tombs are open, and then it seems like they walk out until he says this, after his resurrection. So there's kind of two options. He fast-forwards three days and says, oh, by the way, when Jesus rose, this happened. But that doesn't totally make sense. Um, it seems like this happens right when Jesus died. So here's what I imagine happened. Uh, I'm going to fill in the blanks. I imagine Jesus dies on the cross. All of the heavens erupt. God in his wrath and fury, there's physical repercussions and reverberations in the spiritual realm and the physical. The tombs are burst open. And then all of a sudden, all of these people who had trusted in God are alive, but they stay in the tombs. That's my theory. <laughs> because it seems like that, but they don't come out until after the resurrection. So like in solidarity with the dead body of Jesus, they all hang out in the tombs. That's my theory. I don't know if it really works, right? Uh, but here's what happens. These resurrected people showed up after the resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem. I mean, imagine your great aunt Sue, right? She died 30 years ago and she knocks on the door and she's like, hey, you're like, 
what? What? Like, like Jesus, you're like, uh, I mean, this is really crazy. Now, there's, there's some questions, right? So did these people, were they given bodies sort of like Lazarus? So Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead because he's God, he can do that. And then Lazarus eventually died. Um, were these people that had trusted in God and then he raised them from the dead and then they ascended? We, we don't know. Likely, I think what happened is he raised them from the dead and then they were like Lazarus eventually died again. Uh, but there are some things happening here that you, you got to see. Two things being communicated on a physical level. Rocks split, earthquakes, dead people alive, crazy weird. Okay, But there's something huge being communicated here. Number one is this. Jesus, his power is awesomely huge. He can do anything he wants. He can raise dead people. So if you ever wonder if putting your soul and your body and your faith in Jesus is like really worth it, can he really protect me? The answer is absolutely yes. But here's number two. If you're not Jewish, which most of you aren't, I see one, maybe two here, okay? You're not going to get this. So Friday, Good Friday today, is Passover. It's a Jewish feast festival where they sacrifice a lamb for the atoning of our sin. And Jesus is the Lamb of God, pure and spotless, one sacrifice for all. But what they celebrate on the Sunday after Passover is called first fruits. And in first fruits, here's what you give. Your first and your best as a promise of more to come. You give your first and your best as a promise of more to come. And so here's what I want you to understand. And this is what the text is trying to communicate to you. That when Jesus died and rose again, Jesus was God's first and his best and he was a promise that there would be many more to come. And these, these many resurrections, if you will, it's God's declaration that what he did to Jesus, he will do for every single person who trusts in him. And he will give you a new body, and you will be with him forever and ever and ever. I want you to listen to 1 Corinthians 15 in case you think that's a crazy interpretation. Verse 20 says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or died. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. These resurrected saints are a foreshadow of what is going to happen to you and me. And you could just look at this on a physical level, but there are deep spiritual realities and things going on as a result of the death of Jesus. And then finally, number three, and I'll be honest, this is one, the more I think about it, just sort of astounds me and shocks me. It says, when the centurion, who's a Roman guard who oversees a large contingent of Roman warriors, soldiers, and those who were with him, so his squadron, keeping watch over Jesus... You have to pause. They're not just like onlookers. In all likelihood, I'm like 98% confident of this. These were the men who were given the responsibility to oversee the execution of Jesus, if not the ones who did it themselves. So I want you to catch, something's going to happen to the centurion and some of his men. But these are, this isn't just some random centurion watching. This is one of the centurions. This is the centurion that was responsible for the affairs of the crucifixion of Jesus. Here's what it says. When they saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. 
can just tell you my like deep desire for Good Friday for you is that you lay your head on your pillow tonight and as your thoughts go to God and you think about what he's done for you, you would be reminded of that moment when you first came to Christ and you were in awe that the God of this universe would pour out his wrath on his son in your place for your benefit and that God would love you so much that he would do this for you. That's just one of my simple prayers for you. And that these soldiers had that, you remember when you first realized the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, what he actually did, and you're just like, what? They're getting it for the first time. And then here is their response. Truly, this was the Son of God. God tears the curtain as a symbol. God shakes the ground and opens the tombs as a symbol. And now one of the, I think, greatest miracles on the planet the very men who killed Jesus, he saves as a symbol that there is no one he cannot forgive. There is no one too far gone. There is no one that the blood of Christ is not thick enough to completely cover over your sins. There is no one too dirty. There is no one too defiled. There is no one too disgusting. There is no one too far gone. I could look at you, and I've heard this more times than I would like to admit, when people would say, God could never forgive me. And at this point, I want to look at you and say, did you hammer the nail into his hands and his feet? Did you spit on him and mock him in that moment? Did you take a rod and beat him over the head? Did you strip him naked? Did you cram a crown of thorns on his head and deride him? Did you pull up a cross as his body hung there? No, you didn't. And if God can look at this centurion and his men and forgive them, who do you think you are to say, I'm too far gone? And I stop in this moment and I just say, God, if you can save them, you can save me. And there's some of you here who your whole life, you've been running away from God, and your excuse is this, you don't know what I've done, and that's an excuse. Because Jesus has removed every single barrier between you and God except for one, and it's unbelief. And so the question for you today is, will you continue to resist, or will you be like this centurion and his guards and say, truly, this was the Son of God? I want to close with a question. Who will pay for your sin? You have two options. There's no other way. There's two options. You will either pay for your sin in hell, away from God, or Jesus will pay for your sin. To me, it's a no-brainer. But in the cosmic rules of the universe, this is the way God has determined it. Our sin separates us from God. And we do not have the capacity in and of ourselves to make this right. There is no amount of giving or church going or good works that could possibly make up our sin debt. And so Jesus, God, they give us two options. You pay or he pays. And I love this, that the means to having your sins paid, the way this happens is one simple physical act with profound spiritual repercussions, I believe. And so my question for you is this. Do you 
believe? Do you believe that Jesus went to the cross for your sins and for your place? And do you believe that God raised him from the dead? And if you have that belief, that faith, even if it's just the mustard seed, today is the day to profess it and to come to him with this simple physical act to trust in him. I promise you, you will never regret becoming a child of God. And on Sunday, we're going to come back, we're going to worship. You know what Sunday declares? He wins, everyone else loses. I want to be on the winning team. And in that moment that you trust in Jesus, you pass from condemnation to acceptance, from enemy to child, from trespasser to forgiven. And this is why we love Good Friday, because if you're a Christian, you were dead and now you're alive. And all of that is possible because Jesus paid your debt on the cross. So we're going to celebrate communion in a moment. And some of you, you are here and you think Christians are weird. We are. It's, we're just weirdos. I get it. Some of you don't like Jesus. You think he demands too much or it doesn't make sense. And, and I cannot. There's no part of me that has the ability to make you believe. My deep prayer for you is that this Good Friday would be the first time that you, with this small physical act, exercise faith, and that you would transfer from enemy of God to child, beloved of God. In two days, we are going to celebrate the fact that Jesus is not dead, but he is fully 100% objectively alive. Village Church, truly, it has been an absolute pleasure worshiping with you. Good Friday.